All right, this morning's text is Colossians chapter 1, and I believe on the Pew Bible you can find it, uh, 983. Uh, we were studying uh, a particular genre, that is the Gospels, that's, that's history. Uh, but now we've, uh, we've shifted, and we will be this summer in an epistle, a letter uh, that is written, to, uh, written by the Apostle Paul. Uh, he's writing to a small church, a young church that is in a city of Colossae. It, uh, it's, a, it's a declining city. Uh, Paul himself has never even been there, uh, but he has heard reports uh, from Epaphras. Uh, we talked a little bit about this last week, and I want to re- uh, remind you, just refresh ever so briefly. Paul is in Rome. He is uh, in one of his imprisonments. And uh, Epaphras, who helped start the church uh, in Colossae, who was a resident of that town, gave him an update. And I think it's interesting, even in the opening verses here, uh, that Paul writes to them and it says, to the saints at Colossae, to, to his brothers and sisters. And you're thinking, how do you know that they're worthy to be called saints? And how could you call them brothers or sisters? They, you, know, you don't even know them. You haven't met them. Uh, except, of course, that Paul is fully aware uh, that because of Christ, not because of their excellent behavior or their, uh, their, their spiritual credentials, that they should be called saints, but they collectively, as the church of Christ, have been covered in the blood of Jesus, that they enjoy a status being set apart because of Christ's finished work, they can be known and, and called, declared saints and have a relationship. And because Christ is their older brother and his older brother and the spirit of God that unites us, uh, he knows that they are part of his family, even at a distance. The letter is written, uh, like I said, from prison, and he would love to see them. He would love to, uh, to encourage them face to face. But at a distance, he's saying, I, I want to commend these things to you. And I also want to warn you, uh, there are some at times false teachers that have made their way into this city like others. Uh, and they're not named in particular the, uh, you know, the heresy or the false teaching. But, uh, but we know that the common denominator amongst uh, whatever was infiltrating by way of of uh, corrupt teaching, uh, it wasn't that that blatant. It was subtle. It wasn't just that, hey, Jesus is, you know, you, you've heard that Jesus is good, but actually he's bad. Uh, it's not like that. It, it, in, in fact, oftentimes the worst of lies are half-truths, as we know. And so the half-truth is that Jesus is great, and Jesus is the Son of God, and Jesus is helpful, but Jesus is not enough. You need a special experience. Uh, You need an insightful knowledge. You need to follow these special rules or steps, and then you can be, uh, you know, deemed righteous and accepted and and favored by God. But but he's saying, no, right out of the gates in verse two, he says that it's grace and peace to you in Christ. So it's only in Christ that they can uh, enjoy these things in this reality. Jesus is enough. We said it last week. It doesn't matter whether you're in a mall or maybe you're in a big airport terminal somewhere and uh, you need to find a a smoothie or maybe you need to find a bathroom. Uh, If you find the map, it's it's really it it really means almost next to nothing. Uh, Even if you can find the smoothie store or the bathroom on that map, the most important thing we talked about this last week is that that red dot that says you are here at the beginning of any good navigation. You need to know where your location and I said it last week, and I'll remind you again that as we navigate life as, as sons and daughters of the Most High God, the greatest thing about us is our location. We are in Christ. We are in Christ. We have union with the second person of the Trinity that we, we see this, 
Maybe you don't see it because like, if you're like me, there's been times I've been reading through the, the testimony of Scripture and it's so there in Him, in Christ, in, in Jesus, all of these things. Financial, no, 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 not financial blessings. Uh, uh, you know, personal blessings, uh, maybe. No, eternal blessings being united to Christ, that we are in Him. He even says it in chapter uh, 3 that we've been raised with Christ. Uh, Verse 3 of that same chapter, we are hidden with Christ. We have hope, we have purpose, we have joy, we have righteousness, we have forgiveness. We, We have promise, victory, all because of this reality that we are in Christ. And then he he discloses, Paul even gives a pretty clear hint to the purpose of his letter when he says in chapter two that you are uh, you are revealed. The, the hope of this is revealed in Christ Jesus. So walk in him being rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught abounding in thankfulness. So imagine, right? Imagine the original scene where uh, Paul in prison then takes has these two these these two brothers in Christ, uh, Tychicus and uh, Onesimus. Well, those are very unique names, and I probably mispronounced them, but you get the point. These two guys leave Rome. They head back to to Colossae, to the city, to the church, and they're bringing this personal letter. And the people would have gathered together to hear what is Paul's letter, but really the the, the voice of God for them personally. Uh, but also now for, for us, because that letter was intended to be circulated and preserved of, of, of God. But, but just imagine, and they weren't gathered, by the way, in a cathedral or some you know, colossal, uh, beautiful, ornate building with hundreds and hundreds and thousands of people. No, this was, a, this was a young church plant meeting in the home of Philemon. And they're reading this letter for the first time and they're hearing. They, they don't know Paul. They, they know that he's in prison. They know that he... Uh, has been an instrument to lead many to faith. Well, let me ask you to stand as we read these verses. We're just going to read the opening 14 verses. I covered the first two last week. Our focus will be chapter 1, verses 3 to 14. Hear this. This is the Word of God. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, Grace to you and peace from God, our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of of truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing as it, is also, it also does among you, since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God and truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ, and on your behalf, on your behalf, and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. Verse 9, and so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom. And understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power according to His glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father, who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. 
He has delivered us from the dominion of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. You may be seated. Last, last month, uh, just up the road in Cambridge, uh, both MIT and Harvard had uh, scientists who released an article describing how they had spotted and documented evidence of a star Uh, millions of light years away uh, that had run out of fuel and as a result had swallowed up an entire planet. I I, I, I have a really hard time wrapping my head around that, but uh, I I, I trust that that's... They they said, by the way, that's the future of of our planet. That's our fate. Uh, Don't worry, the earth has another five billion years. If that's supposed to happen, we'll find out, I guess. Uh, Maybe we will. Who knows? But imagine all that goes on not only in our galaxy that we cannot see, understand, or truly appreciate, and even the, the wonder of what we, we can in part see and appreciate. I, I think about even the things that we are able to capture and see. Some are not that far off. They might be a satellite that's reflecting, and we think it's a star. There's times that we look up and we see uh, a star, and lo and behold, it's actually not a star. That, that some scientists would say, actually, that star is... Is an entire system unto itself with orbiting light that is inside of it. Why do I bring that up? I, I think this text, even these few verses here, are in many ways like those stars. They're so vast. They're so profound in the glories of the realities of what it describes that it's beyond our true grasp. What Paul is describing, inspired of God's Spirit, is is just so vast. You don't have anywhere to be, do you? Uh, we, we've, got, we've, got, we've got plenty of time, right? I'll keep it brief. But I think we need God's help. So why don't we pray? Father, we do ask that, uh, well, we first thank you that you have, by the power of your word, spoken into being all that exists out of nothing. And yet you related to us through your son, Jesus, our redeemer. God, we ask that right now you would help us. We don't want to just learn interesting things and we don't want to just be inspired. We want to be changed. We want to treasure and be transformed by our Savior. So we pray in his name and for his sake and praise. Amen. I think we see two things kind of orbiting, going back to that analogy. Uh, two, two things in, in, in large part. One is thankfulness and the other is a, is a prayerfulness that we see uh, in this portion of the letter. So those are my two uh, headings to, to help you. The opening you know, few verses, three through eight, is that, that uh, thankfulness. And then he, he, he moves over in verse nine to, to prayerfulness. We see the intersection, of course, of both of those things going on right there in verse three. Let's read it again. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus, when we pray uh, for you. So in many ways, uh, we, we, we know that prayer... Uh, is thanksgiving, and thanksgiving is prayer. Uh, so that kind of flows both ways. I even remember being a young boy in, in public school one day, and I realized that there were a whole variety of people that uh, didn't believe in God. And, uh, and it, it was fall, and we were getting close to Thanksgiving, and I thought, well, what do you do? If you don't believe in God, what do you do at Thanksgiving? <laughs> you just get to eat turkey, and you don't have to do that exercise where moms and dads make everybody go around and say something they're thankful for. Who are you thankful to if there is no God? I remember thinking that as a 9 or 10-year-old. 
we're thankful to God. Paul, of course, here, I, I think, is distinguishing, though, between prayer and thanks, because here, not, not everywhere, but at least in this context, prayer is about asking, excuse me, uh, prayer is about asking, but thanksgiving is about acknowledging. So he is putting a, a, a distinction temporarily here between prayer and thanksgiving, because uh, you know, not all prayer is thanksgiving, but thanksgiving is, you could say, a prayer. But he's distinguishing between the two. I think we can uh, relate to this, but the logic of Paul is, is different. And I'll explain what I mean, because I'm going I'm to venture to guess that your experience is somewhat like my experience uh, with thanks and, and, and prayer. Because, you see, e- even if it's a brief window or it's a, a long season, we have the opportunity when, when things are going well. And maybe, like I said, you just think, well, this is just a real brief window uh, uh, that things are going well and, and, and I'm, I'm happy that in those moments, we're most inclined toward thanksgiving. And not so much inclined towards prayer to ask God for things. But when things are, are, are overwhelmed, where we are overwhelmed, when we find ourselves anxious, when things are not uh, are desperate, we we. we we're not as inclined to thanksgiving, but we are inclined towards prayer and, and asking for things. But the logic of Paul here is that he's so overwhelmed with thanksgiving to God that he could not nor should not stop asking God for things. What he is thankful, what is it that he's thankful for in these opening six verses? Well, he's not thankful to them, he's very explicit in his thanks to God who has been working in them. He, he does give credit to Epaphras. He says, you know, that his, his ministry has been valuable. He's been a faithful minister. But ultimately, uh, he's grateful to God. And what is he grateful to God uh, for and about? Well, it's partly these three classic Christian virtues. Faith, hope, and love. And Paul says elsewhere in 1 Corinthians 13, 13, that the greatest of these is love. Thank you. Here, in the context of Colossians, I think he would say, actually, the greatest of these for them is, is, is hope. Nevertheless, you, you look at these three virtues, these. By the way, you know, this is a, uh, you know, this is an outward facing virtue. This is something that is not hidden or. Uh, merely individual and internal, but actually external and outward facing. Let's just go back and review them briefly. Verse four, that they, he is thankful that they have a faith and that the object of that faith uh, is Christ Jesus. And that faith, it's not, a, it's not a, a blind trust in some spirituality. The object of it is the person and work of Jesus. And that faith in Christ has an embodiment that is expressed in love. So that's the next thing he mentions in verse 4. This outward facing, the, the love that they have is not internal. It's, it's not sentimental. It's, uh, it, it's, it's outward facing. It's selfless. It's, it's love toward, he says, others in the body, the family of Christ. There was a diverse group of people there. There were both Jews and Gentiles, mostly Gentiles. But then verse 8, he also describes that that love is something that was wrought, that was birthed because of the Spirit, that God's Spirit was the one who, again, gets the credit. And then there's this outward virtue of 
of hope. You see it there in verse five, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. You say, how is that outward words? It's outward facing towards the future, that there is something that is on the horizon for them, for us in Christ. Now, we use the word hope. We throw it out there all the time. It's more of a uh, it's, it's often expressed as a mere sentiment of what we wish for. I hope you have no rain on your graduation ceremony. Well, that, that was kind of a hit or miss for some of you, I, I know. But uh, well, we say, I, I, I hope that you have a nice day. I hope you have fun on your birthday. Here, hope is found outward facing in the glory of heaven, which is obviously different than some type of subjective expectation that we possess. And, and I'll explain what I mean. We use the, the term hope one way. And, and of course, uh, there was an English poet as I was reading this week in a commentary, uh, Alexander Pope, who once uh, this English poet wrote, uh, you know, in a kind of a sarcastic, sarcastic tone, blessed is he who expects nothing for he shall never be disappointed. True? Yeah, it's cynical, but true. Uh, yeah, yeah, fine. But this particular uh, commentator, New Testament scholar, uh, David Garland writes, in the New Testament, hope refers to the confident expectation that God will fulfill his promise, not our personal dreams. Christians expect, are expecting everything, and this hope will not disappoint. Why is this? Why, why is that the case? Because the hope is sure and secure because our hope is the living Christ. The risen, living hope is Jesus. Again, God's the one, he, Paul appreciates it, but God's the one who gets the praise for this trio of virtues that they possess because he is the supernatural source. He is the fount. He is the, the, the spring from which this flows. It's God's grace enabling them, and then, of course, God's Spirit empowering them to, to bear these fruit. The fruit of God's grace is both bearing in them and multiplying. Paul says it in verse 6. Let's look at the text again. He says, that he, Increasingly such, as it's done among you since the day you heard it and understood it, the grace of God in truth. But it didn't just... It didn't just come to them, verse 6, which has come to you, indeed, to the whole world. Now, that should sound and seem a little bit strange if we know church history, because this has not happened yet. I mean, the, uh, Luke's continuing account of volume 2 of his gospel is Acts, and we do see that the gospel begins to make uh, progress into the Gentile world, but it's, it's still regionalized at this point. Right. And he's writing to a, a small church plant in, in, in a dying city. You know, what do you mean it, it is spreading to the whole world? Well, of course, it did and it would. It's actually speaking to the, the powerful efficacy, the effectiveness and the universality of the good news of Jesus Christ, the gospel. I, I mean, I, I, I remember a, a number of years ago, I was asked to teach a, a, a seminar, a class on the history of modern missions. And, uh, and I knew a little bit about it and had read some textbooks, but I, I had really, you know, kind of pour into some more study to, to try to grasp this in a way that could, I, I could actually try to teach other people. And I remember coming across the, the names of great, wonderful people, but to, to even contemplate the fact that a hundred, a little over a hundred years ago, 
80% of Christians in the world lived in Europe or North America. But what a testimony that the gospel is universal and powerful because in the space of, of, of just over 100 years, so much has changed. Thousands, tens of thousands of, of people sometimes in a day in other parts of the world like South America. I remember studying about uh, Adoniram Judson, one of those great uh, missionaries who actually is from Massachusetts and, uh, and went to school here. And, and many of his family is buried here just down in Plymouth on Burial Hill. He was buried at sea because he was going in between here and, and Burma to spread the gospel of, of Jesus. It was people like that that had a vision. Now the gospel is is flourishing in other parts of the world, in South America and Asia, Africa. 40% of Christians in the world live in the continent of Africa. Praise God. Praise God. The gospel is expanding. It's not just to say and to make commentary the fact that by 2030, some people are predicting that in China, there'll be more Christians there than in any country in the world. Well, you can say, well, that's by sure volume of their population. It doesn't matter. Think about it. It's not just that it's diminished other places and, and, and perhaps has, but, but that it's, it's growing. The beautiful testimony of the church expanding globally. And by the way, the places where it's hardest upon those people, like China, people meeting in tons of house churches like they were at Philemon's house this very day in China. The hardest places where they're trying the most to stamp out and silence Jesus and his followers it almost seems to have an inverse effect on the growth of the gospel and the church flourishing. Praise God. So he's thankful. He is deeply thankful unto God. Now, let's look at verse 9 uh, through 14 because this is where there's a prayerfulness as well. Here's the other orbiting uh, light around that great star who is our Redeemer, Jesus. Let's read it. Verse 9 again. And so from the day we heard it, we have not ceased to pray for you. Now, and then he asked for certain things. But again, thankfulness was the why of prayer. But here we get into some of the what. What does he pray? Paul is, what does he, what does he long to see manifest uh, in their lives? One of them, so clearly, in two places we see, is that they would have knowledge. Part of that knowledge would be a knowledge of God's will. Uh, prior to moving here, I was, uh, my, my flock in a large church was a bunch of people in their 20s and 30s. And we had lots of conversations about what's God's will for my life. And, uh, and so that's always of, of some degree of interest, particularly in that season. But, but all of us are curious about what is God's personal will for my life? Well, the Hebrew people always knew the answer to that. And it was found in places like Deuteronomy and Exodus. And so when someone would come to me and say, what's God's will for me? And I would say, let's open it up. I'll tell you where it turns. Deuteronomy 5. And they turn there and they go, but this is, this is the Ten Commandments. Yeah, that's God's will for your life. On a day-to-day -day basis, regardless of the circumstances and the shrapnel and the, the celebration and all the noise and everything, that I need to still be a loving, generous, truthful person? Yes, I, I need to be a disciple. But the glory is this. For the Jewish people, for the Hebrews, they had the law of God, and we have the fulfillment of the law of God in Christ. And then we know that He has got plans and wisdom and design for us, and that He's coming back one day. But it's even more than to know the law of God, it's also to know God. 
to encounter the living God, not not through obedience to the, the law, but by him condescending, relating, conveying, covenanting, meeting us. We for those who have been and we've had a, a large group in our uh, study of J.I. Packer's Knowing God. He writes this. We are cruel to ourselves if we try to live in this world without knowing about the God whose world it is and who runs it. The world becomes a strange, mad, painful place and life in it is disappointing and unpleasant business for those who do not know about God. Disregarding the study of God, disregard the study of God and you sentence yourself to stumble and blunder through life blindfolded as it were with no sense or direction and no understanding of what surrounds you. This way you can waste your life and lose your soul. To love God with our mind, to know God. But, and that's not in tension with, with our experience of God. And you'll know why. Because it's not just about knowing about God, but to truly know God. It is possible to know about God. It's both a, you, you understand, it's both a, a possibility and simultaneously a tragedy that there is a way to know about God, lots about God. And not know God. Personally, relationally, intimately, to know God. In, in Knowing God, Packer talks about the, the, the scene. Imagine the, the perspective, the vantage point of a, of a person standing on a balcony in a Spanish town way, way up. And it's a busy road beneath. So there's people who are on journey walking and there's others who are on a balcony and they have a particular vantage, but the people on the balcony could even tell the people on the road, hey, turn here, go there, look out for that. But it's a completely different experience to actually be on that road. To try to navigate, to, to know of God's truth and God's love and his wisdom and grace in Jesus in a way that actually intersects and impacts our lives. We've all seen the news. We've all seen the coverage that AI is artificial intelligence is going to take a lot of people's jobs away. I, I, I don't know, but I know there's going to be a whole host of jobs that are preserved because it doesn't matter how much data and interpretation you have. You and I need wisdom. We need wisdom to navigate life well. Well, let's keep looking at what he's praying for. Verse 10 his desires that they would have this knowledge of his will so as to walk, verse 10, in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit. So in other words, this is not, uh, again, knowledge about God's will. This is a knowledge that impacts our lives. People who are changed. You know, one of the most powerful arguments for the legitimacy and the, uh, the truth of Christianity are people, people who have been set free and desire to please God, not themselves and not others. That's one of the distinguishing marks, right? They're going back to one of the, the virtues of love that they would be known by their love. That's part of walking in a manner worthy of the Lord, he says here. 
What does that even mean? People, people transformed and then walking in the Christ to whom they're united to. What does that look like or mean? Well, it involves things like, look at verse 11, joy, patience, spilling, going over into thanksgiving. So, so back to, to prayer. His prayer for them is to have wisdom and knowledge of God's will. Like I said, that is found in his law. But there is only one person who has ever submitted to and fulfilled that law. At every point, under every circumstance, enduring every type of temptation. And that is Jesus. He is the point at every point. Romans 10, verse 4, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Are you a person of prayer? Well, of course you are. Are you a Christian? You can't even be a Christian unless you pray the most foundational basic prayer. Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. Lord, save me from myself. Paul's praying that they would know. They would know what Christ has done for them. So that they wouldn't be tempted to think that there's Jesus plus something else that these false teachers were presenting to them. The knowledge he wants for them is the knowledge not of what God's going to do, but what God has already done. Thus, the section ends here. Let's look at it together in verses 12 through 14, he began with thanksgiving. He closes with thanksgiving. Verse 12, he's giving thanks to the Father. Who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light? So no, 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 you didn't, you didn't qualify yourself. God has in Christ. Verse 13, he has delivered us from the dominion of darkness, transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Jesus, not you, has qualified us. That's, that's, that's thanksgiving and thanksgiving that then spills over into, well, if you've already begun this, you know, while you're at it, thank you. And while you're at it, would you please continue? Paul is saying, we should be saying, if you're, if you're lacking in what to say in prayer, like I do, then, then take up prayers like this for yourself and for others and, and, and pray them back to the Lord. My, my prayer book is, is the Psalter. I, I, you know, I don't know sometimes what to pray. And then there's these great letters and, and glimpses and pictures that places like Paul here that, that guide us into prayer. The thankfulness of why we're there and the, 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 the substance of what we're asking for. We have faith, hope, and love. We have something past, present, and future. Why? Because of our union with Christ. Thanksgiving should not draw us away from, but toward prayer. So regardless of where we find ourselves in the valley or the mountaintop, that it is, is prayer of thanks and, and thanks in the context of prayer and the substance of these things that we would be bearing much fruit. Would you pray with me? Father, we know now in part 
But we pray you'd increase us in that knowledge, that we would be students of your word, your character, your ways, your wisdom. Would you keep us humble, Lord? Would you, uh, would you grant to us faith that would manifest and, and, and bear fruit in the way that we love one another? And that it would testify of your greatness and the goodness of the gospel, that people would be, would be drawn, people would be uh, intrigued, that people would ask questions, that we would be able to remind them of who our Savior is. Lord, I thank you for the victory that we have in Christ. Lord, I thank you for the unity that we have in Christ. I thank you for the unity that we have with other churches that proclaim the gospel in this area. And we do pray your blessing on other churches, that you would keep them unified, that you would keep them in step with your spirit and faithful to your great commission. I pray that you would pr protect them, Lord, from attacks and from the voice of the enemy. Lord, we wanna be people who are so fixed, our eyes so fixed upon Jesus, the author and the perfect of our faith, the joy set before him enduring the cross that we're willing to listen, love, suffer, sacrifice, give, humble ourselves, even apologize. Thank you, God, for letting those words come to our mouth. We're sorry. Have mercy on us, both vertically and and horizontally, may we be a people like that this week. We thank you again for Christ. And we pray, we pray in his name. And as he taught his disciples praying together, our Father who art in heaven, 